Chapter 7 Take Me Back Home F. Sewell and Son, Hull Limited I rang Frank as requested. He was his usual imperious, self-important self, but marginally more lovable, and I did grow to love him. His news was that he'd been with my fellow lead student, Dennis Sewell, and his father, Doug, the day before, in Hull, discussing their company's future including Doug's retirement and succession. He said they would like to talk to me about being part of those plans, and if I was interested, he would set up a meeting. After three years at university, and a further four in the West Riding with Fairclough, I was more than ever ready to go home and have a normal commute to work, with all its attendant benefits for my family and my social life. I made my way down Sutton Road from Cottingham that October day, wondering what the future might hold for me. I drove into the heritage area of Sutton Village, past the church and the ship inn, and on to see the two pumps, a brick-built kiosk, and the canopy of BP Sutton service station that fronted the builder's yard. I pulled up outside the office next door, got out of my car, and stood up straight to view the classically symmetrical Georgian detached property. It had an impressive central door, with large sash windows on either side, and three of the same on the first floor. The brass plaque on the red brick wall, stating that this was the registered office of F. Sewell and Son Hull Limited, was the only indication that it was a business premises, rather than one of those grand old family homes. I opened the large heavy front door and stepped into a miserable dark lobby that had a hatch with a sliding glass door and a white press button for attention sign. I pressed the button and a demure young woman immediately parted the frosty glass that I think she was stationed behind, waiting to be buzzed. She greeted me cordially, but not warmly, and ushered me directly from the hall into the former lounge which now acted as a boardroom. I was familiar with the smart ginger military bearing of Frank Markham, so it was the man who stood next to him who grabbed all my attention. Reginald Douglas Sewell had silver-grey swept-back hair, stylish square gold-rimmed glasses and a healthy but rugged complexion that suggested an outdoors man. In his smart casual jacket and trousers, he had an easy manner, a winning friendly white-toothed smile and a demeanour that was more American or Australian than stuffy British. He was gentle to the point of being the nervous one in the interview, and I immediately liked him. It felt as if he was a prospective colleague rather than a boss. Frank and Doug explained that the company had been in a state of flux since the retirement of one director, Ted Found, and the untimely death of another, Harold Beckett, leaving majority shareholder Doug feeling that this was time to look at his future. They believed that the organisation would be best run in the future by three directors as it had been in the past, and so they had already acted to fill the void left by Ted Found in appointing Harold Beckett's son-in-law, Keith Lee, and now wanted me to consider making up the threesome again as Doug contemplated retirement. Keith was an RICS professional quantity surveyor who had graduated from Nottingham at the same time as Dennis and I had from Leeds and it was felt the balance between us would be a good one. We would have three professionally qualified young people to reinvigorate this old, traditional building contractor. Frank and Doug made this sound very attractive, but the proposed remuneration level was not. I was on £5,000 a year at Fairclough, with a company car in the offing to offset my substantial travel expenses, whereas their level was pitched at £4,500 a year with a car allowance, but no car. The saving grace was the ability to substantially elevate basic pay with an annual bonus if the company did well. The Sewell way was to pay competitively to keep overhead costs down and pricing sharp, and to share our success when we had won the work and successfully delivered it. With a young family and a new mortgage, money was tight, and so and I had done our sums based on the package I was on. I had a decision to make. As we thought it through, I grew more content. My reason for considering this opportunity was about more than reducing my commute time. I would become a stakeholder 
where I could have real input into my one precious career. Here I was with Doug, the person who would affect and influence that career the most. I would know him and work with him, and in due course he would retire and leave the company to us. Then I would have my own small business, just like Dad's, to grow with Dennis and Keith. I realised that this is what I'd been missing, and that I must take some early upfront sacrifices to get it. Never again did I want somebody like Roger Salas having a big influence on my life. The only people I wanted to have the ability to sack me were my customers. I was in. Poorer, but happier. I handed in my notice to Roger Salas personally. He was flabbergasted, saying, Within another ten years, you would have been on the regional board. But my mind was made up. I wanted to be in a small business environment like the one I grew up in. Devoted Slade fan Chris Perks and I had been the most homesick in that first year at university. So his Brummy Heroes hit song of the time, Take Me Back Home, meant something to us both. It did for me now. I was indeed going back home. The dawn of 1978 saw the Bee Gees and their disco music dominating the airwaves which had me wishing for the onset of a Slade-induced premature deafness during my first early morning drive to 7678 Church Street, Sutton. The news on the car radio was not much better than the music. Beleaguered Labour Prime Minister Jim Callaghan urging striking firemen to go back to work so that the army with their green goddess fire engines could go back to defending the country. A feisty female leader of the opposition called Margaret Thatcher was breathing down his neck and ready to pounce. I was greeted in the lobby of the offices by Dennis, who, from his big toothy grin, seemed pleased to see me. He showed me upstairs to my back corner office at the top of the central staircase, which looked into the rear builder's yard, which seemed like something out of the 1950s. In the courtyard to the right was a large, long, single-storey building with a green moss-covered asbestos roof. This housed the joiner's shop and half a dozen workers, together with their foreman, Frank. In front, and 30 metres away, was an equally large, open two-storey woodshed, which stored all types and sizes and lengths of timber. To the left, closing the square, was another two-storey block, which was mainly empty, save for an old stable in the middle of the ground floor, which was the plant and transport office, housing driver Stan, and fitter mechanic Harry. Sam's lorry was packed diagonally across the yard, waiting for Dennis to leave me and go and give him his work schedule for the day. An old dumper that looked as though it should have been retired a while ago was awaiting first aid from the fitter, and a JCB digger was behind it, awaiting nothing in particular. But around it were four workers, who had been sent back into the yard, because their work on site had finished. Putting this lot to work in the morning was a stressful task which would begin each day. It would be particularly stressful on Monday mornings. Such pressure is perhaps why building companies tend to define success as having plenty of work on and being busy rather than making a profit and delighting the customer into providing more business. Back in the office, Managing Director Doug had as his office the former bedroom at the back with the same view as me. The two front former bedrooms facing Church Street were the offices of Dennis and Keith. This team in this formation would carry the company through the next 10 years, from being a reputable but rather old-fashioned East Hull builder to becoming a real force in the city. The only thing obvious that winter's day, however, was that there was much work to do. The workforce was a passable imitation of a larger but less motivated Dad's Army troop. The uniform was a flat cap with a woodbine under the rim and the prevailing attitude was one of surly, passive resentment. There was a culture of workers' rights and what they could get rather than collective responsibility and what they could give. Workmanship and quality were evidently excellent, reputation good and the firm was in profit, but energy and morale were low with the effect that productivity was at crisis point and this would eventually hamper results. 
I say now that people wear one of two badges. These either say, I care, or I don't care. There were far too many of the latter when I arrived at Efsawal, and although now, looking back, I can understand the insecurity that rapid change brings, and the industrial relations backdrop in the country, it was still not good enough. It had to change. Looking at the players that we had in our squad, it was evident they were largely in the advanced stages of their careers, and ideally needed to move on or out. They didn't lack talent, just application and passion, with breaks and home time the only bits of the working day that they seemed to enjoy. To me it seemed to be all about the money. Directors and shareholders wanted their profit and return, and workers the best hourly rate and as much overtime as they could get. Creating something beyond this would be the key. I assessed the squad that we were inheriting. Mr Hutchins, accountant bookkeeper. Always Mr Hutchins, never Dennis. Old school, prudent and loyal, with white hair and a painful grimace as if suffering from wind, he was the one who would be picked out of a lineup as being of his profession. None of us ever swore in his presence, saving our profanities for when he had departed. All ledger entries were beautifully handwritten, but only inserted when fully ratified. While this gave us wholly accurate financial results, they were always a little too late to be useful. This taught us that nearly right, early, was better than the exactly wrong it would be later when the context had inevitably changed. Mr Hutchins looked after the three girls who worked for him in the general office like a firm but fair grandfather, and when he retired, he was very difficult to replace. Alf Timmins, senior general foreman. Slim with a hawkish face and fair, thinning, wispy hair, Alf ruled the roost amongst the site staff, enjoying the most prestigious job. Confident to the point of arrogance, he never really settled in our new regime and departed after a series of differences of opinion with Dennis. Only one winner there. Ken Maltby, General Foreman. A disingenuous charmer with a winning smile beneath his flat cap, Ken was a skilled and knowledgeable builder. Brickwork under his supervision won awards, and his clients were generally well pleased, as were the ladies in the vicinity of his site. Complex and complicated to deal with, I actually liked him recognising that I indeed could kid the kidder in the team. Lou Medforth, foreman bricklayer. Bent crooked after a lifetime of laying bricks, Lou's significant stutter, uttered through the worst-fitting false teeth, made most of his observations appear comedic. He's a fur 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 fucking cuckoo, he was saying one day in the site lobby of a warehouse refurbishment on Gildall Road, next to Queen's Gardens in Central Hull. Please stop, Lou, my dagger-like stare silently pleaded. The object of your expletives has come into the room and is about to stand right behind you. That fur 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 fucking architect, he's a fucking cur cur cur. Good morning, Mr Jeffries. I welcomed Peter Jeffries, the architect from Fisher Hollingsworth and Partners. Peter good-naturedly ignored Lou's rambling, stuttering insults. Bert Marit, foreman joiner. Bert would be the continuum throughout all of the changes we brought about. He was a survivor and retired, still a sole employee 25 years later, working on the British Aerospace site at Bruff. The diminutive country boy from the East Riding village of Ellica, his sad sheepdog eyes often had the answer, but wouldn't give it, preferring to wait till everybody had worked their way agonisingly towards it. He would then confirm what he knew at the outset. Maybe this again was a confidence thing. Dick Proctor, foreman joiner. Nervous and so lacking in confidence, Dick used to break out in a rash at the thought of taking any responsibility. I always thought this was a little contradictory given his position as a foreman. I thought I saw him smile once, but it proved to be a grimace as he realised that his overtime for the previous week had not been included in his pay packet. It says it's all about his skill as a joiner, his outlook on life 
and is perchant for planning for the worst that Dick built his own coffin. Peter Cron, foreman joiner. A year or two younger than Dick, with more verve, Pete distinguished himself through his work ethic, which was driven by an overwhelming desire to maximise the weight of his pay packets. When handing out the wages, I could tell by the weight and thickness of the small square brown envelope exactly who had been getting the overtime in the previous week, and Peter was invariably the winner. Painfully thin and pale, Pete had a cigarette between his lips as a permanent feature. I even saw him cut a hole in his face mask so that he could smoke while working. Never seen that done before or since. He was obviously determined not to make old bones, and he didn't. Johnny Martin, joiner. An affable grandpa figure of a genial Geordie, John was the father of Pete Martin, who I played with at Hull City, so we had a knowledge and love of football in common. John preferred talking to working, and had a strange slow walk, whereby his legs only seemed to move from the knee down. Bill Turner, joiner. Skilled tradesman and senior role model to many, Bill was probably the most resentful of the new regime. Deliberate and slow beyond belief, he would hang two doors per day when we were pricing for at least four and was just waiting to retire. Joe Smith, joiner. See Bill Turner, but marginally more likeable. Stan Norman, bricklayer. A gentle patriarchal figure who was as economical with his words as he was with the bricks he laid, making him so far as productivity was concerned the bricklaying equivalent of Bill Turner. Harry, fitter mechanic. The only thing to say about Harry is that he was the only car driver in the area to have dumper truck tyres on his Morris Minor. Ron Wood, ganger. A big, softly spoken character with the bushiest eyebrows you ever saw. Ron was a Jekyll giant who turned into Mr Hyde when he'd had a drink. Doug, our managing director, once had to go to court to give him a character reference in order to try to get his sentence commuted after another conviction for fighting. After what Doug said, I thought they might make me Pope, Ron said afterwards, smiling broadly. Ron was a particular favourite of mine. He was giving and willing to give the new regime a chance. So when the East Riding Town crier and local character Mike Wood revealed to me years later that Ron was in fact his father, I could be entirely sincere in the warmth of my recollections. Frank Beadle, joiner shop foreman. Swept back teddy boy hair looked unseemly on an older man especially one wearing light brown overalls that were the uniform of the joiner's shop. Frank's calm persona conveyed neither belligerence nor respect, but he was bright and knew his joinery. He was also frustratingly deliberate to the point that it became hard to make money from his endeavours. A born shop steward, if I ever saw one. The team was the least diverse imaginable, a sprinkling of Geordies being about as cosmopolitan as it got. I do not recall any demography other than white, East Yorkshire, English males of a certain age, which was perhaps a reflection of Hull at that time. Coming directly from Leeds Bradford, it was particularly evident to me. Our team was parochial and incestuous, and desperately in need of a new signing or two. I was soon to oblige, but first it was off to Castle Hill Hospital on the outskirts of my home village of Cottingham where our biggest, most prestigious project was running into difficulties. Castle Hill sprawled across acres of beautiful parkland, just a mile away from where I lived, so I quickly met my desire for a shorter commute. Here we were building, concurrently and next to each other, a new Central Sterile Supplies Department, CSSD, to serve the entire NHS area with goods and equipment, and new twin cardiothoracic operating theatres, that were to be as advanced as any in the country. Those operating theatres were windowless stacks of quality brick boxes and flat roofs. The CSSD was a simple steel frame clad with specialist ultra-clean linings. They were uncomplicated structures 
with specialist installations and high expectations as to their quality of finish. Sewell, having met such expectations over the years, enjoyed an informal preferred supplier status with the NHS. My first challenge was that Site General Foreman Alf Timmins was off sick in hospital with a hernia. We had therefore lost our most experienced and talented manager on our biggest and most complex scheme. Bert Marriott was a born number two, having to overcome his lack of confidence to step into Alf's shoes. As a result, he was one of those most pleased at my arrival. When I got to the site, I found Bert at the top of the magnificent bare steel frame of the CSSD building, on the scaffold with Clark of Works, Keith Granger. There was a piano wire stretched along the eaves from end to end, and they were using it to painstakingly assess how perfectly straight the steelwork was. I was shocked. I had done three steel frames recently with Fairclough and considered going to those lengths to be unnecessary. They indicated a construction version of OCD, but this was just the beginning. Clark of Works are appointed by clients to verify that all things on site are as they should be, but this one was a megalomaniac who was running my site management ragged. Insisting that they always left the slot in a door hinge screw head vertical was, I thought, beyond OCD. I think the new posi screw was invented to confound him. Keith was a big friendly man and his perfectionism did set good quality standards, but he took it too far and was too dominant over our underconfident site management. Like and respect him as I did, I nevertheless felt I had to take a stand. It was a convention in the construction industry that cube test samples of a concrete pole were taken, left to cure for 7 and 28 days, and then crushed to confirm the concrete was of the correct specification. I had done lots of these both at Hulton and Fairclough, and knew about this stuff, if not much else. So I challenged Keith when one borderline result on the CSSD, which was no doubt because of the poor making of the cube rather than anything else, led him to insist that a newly set structural slab was jackhammered to pieces and relayed. I disagreed. We argued about this relatively small issue endlessly at a site meeting, but I stood my ground. If he wanted a cordial sample tested or anywhere taken up, then he would have to pay for it if it was found that the concrete in the building was actually okay and to specification. I thought this was fair enough, but the client team was surprised and uncomfortable. I knew my concrete testing and my contract law. Keith wasn't used to being challenged by a previously benign, compliant family builder, which had always bent to his will in the past. A new era was affecting our relationship with our clients and their professional representatives. They were being introduced to a new breed of professionals on the contractor side of the industry. It's hard to make friends when challenging the status quo, but it had to be done and we had to get the balance right. Ian Cutter, the bearded broad Yorkshire architect from the Health Authority, half joked that ARIBA did not stand for Associates of the Royal Institute of British Architects, but always remember, I'm the bloody architect. I thought, the times they are changing, mate. The days of the professional side of the industry having it all their own way were numbered, as indeed was F. Sewell and Son being an easy touch. This worried Doug, but not the rest of us. If clients were minded only to accept the lowest price, and continually try to drive it down no matter what, then they shouldn't be surprised when contractors, fighting for survival, push back and only did what they'd been asked to price. The adversarial building industry that I came to hate was upon us, and I was glad that I had majored in contract law at college. Bring it on. I always hated bullies, especially if they were posh, superior and arrogant. In this loathing, I was aided and abetted by the most complex human being I ever encountered. Keith Lee was the second of we three construction musketeers who would take the company forward into the future and the real driving force in those early years. A Durham miner's son born into disadvantage, he embodied what I came to know and champion as social mobility decades later. Keith was as flawed as he was bright 
but I adored him for his passion, his irreverence and his entrepreneurialism. At his best back then, Keith was the best I have ever worked with. Relatively small, with a frame destined to get stockier as he grew older, frizzy hair and the fashionable porn star moustache, he had courted and married Angela, the prim, demure daughter of F. Sewell director Harold Beckett. Keith was a raggy-ass Geordie, Angela a posh public schoolgirl from Hull. To me, they never seemed to be a match. Angela's mother Ivy was resentful about losing her husband Harold to a heart attack at a relatively young age and blamed his dedication to F. Sewell and its majority shareholder Doug, who'd retained two-thirds of the shares, with Ted Found and Harold Beckett having one-sixth each. The spouses of the majority shareholders contended it was their husbands who drove the company while Doug enjoyed a more balanced life, spending time with his family and pursuing hobbies such as music and sports. I don't know whether this was true, but they had passed their generational resentment onto Keith, who often bent my ear about it. I didn't care and simply got on with things while it seemed to eat into them. Ambitious Keith started pushing Doug for a directorship almost immediately, and too early in my opinion. I just waited, knowing that if it was to happen to Keith, then it would have to happen to me. Keith was a professionally qualified quantitator, and he modernised the commercial side of the business, just as Dennis and I were modernising the operational side. He was such a sharp cookie, nobody could get the better of him, either on the numbers or points of contract law. This meant that our profitability soared, but we were getting a reputation for being difficult and prickly to deal with. Doug got a call or two from his professional networking hull, whining in protest as he described the calls. Doug replied that his company were also professionals in every sense of the word, including the recovery of our proper entitlements. Things could also get personal with Keith, as they did with the professional quantitator on the Castle Hill jobs. He was an obnoxious little git from John Bevan and Nuttall called Frank Watson. They were the same age and at a similar aspiring stage of their careers. Unfortunately, they also had similar abrasive personalities. They were always winding each other up and trying to score points in a rivalry which was less than friendly. Monthly valuations were feisty, aggravating affairs that I tried to avoid during site visits. Things came to a head when we were at an industry dinner at the Great Park Hotel, with Frank on another table, but still engaging Keith as the drink affected both of them. I was relieved when I saw they had left the dinner, but disconcerted to find out they were actually in the car park, where Keith had knocked Frank out across the bonnet of a parked car. As with Alf versus Dennis, there was only going to be one winner there, since Keith was brought up loving a scrap and had the strength and attitude of a miner's son. Great, I thought, as I walked home in the dark. Dougie's going to love this one. Like many entrepreneurs, Keith sometimes sailed close to the wind in respect of legal convention. On one occasion, we were the lowest price bidder on a biggish tender for the Yorkshire Regional Health Authority when an error was found in our submitted price bill of quantities. The rules in those days were that when an error was discovered, you either confirmed or amended the bid for it to be considered. Keith had discovered the quantum of the next lowest price, so chose to amend our bid to be just below it, thus securing the contract but with more money in it. What he wasn't expecting was for the health authority's auditors to turn up on our doorstep the next day and require sight of the build-up to confirm that Keith was telling an unlikely truth. Once more he had got us into brand damaging trouble, so I was designated to engage our visitors and keep them talking while Keith went into the toilet with the bill of quantities and a barrow to amend the necessary range of items by the right proportion to make our numbers stack up for validation. I could not have done this in the quiet of my office and with an afternoon to spare, never mind in the toilet within half an hour. This is perhaps one reason why much later on I introduced the Sewell value and behaviour of always do the right thing. It is certainly easier and far less stressful. Things got a whole lot more stressful on this occasion when one of our guests wanted to go to the toilet. I had quickly to move Keith down to the office of Sutton Service Station 
on the courtyard outside, whilst making the excuse of the toilet being engaged, which was true of course. I then arranged for our visitors to take a tour of our joiner's shop, which was plausible, as there was to be quite a lot of manufactured joinery in the project, which we would make ourselves. Meanwhile, I rushed down to see how Keith was getting on, and found that he was nearly finished, but was as red as a beetroot, and sweating like I used to do in pre-season training. So I rushed into the toilet of Sutton service station, and ran the cold water tap onto a towel to form a cold compress, which I wrapped around Keith's head like a turban, while he completed his illicit work. Then we returned to the office to present ourselves as calmly as we could to our visitors. I'm sure they must have known something was amiss, but they had a low price from a company of hitherto unblemished reputation, and they wanted to let us off the hook. In my entire career, I know of only one man who could have pulled this off. Keith Lee was as awesome as he was mischievous. Keith was also the only man I've worked with who could consume more beer than a two-on-one bricklaying gang, as he proved at our Christmas Eve lunch party with the lads down at the local ship inn in Sutton. We thought it appropriate to introduce this type of thing as an antidote to the prevailing them-and-us culture, and it worked until a recently hired ganger called Bill Northard joined the party and took an instant dislike to Keith. This guy was in his 40s, with grain hair on a weather-beaten head, which in turn surmounted a lithe fit body. He was passive-aggressive, inappropriate and offensive to one of the office posh pen-pushers, who were, according to him, keeping the workforce down. Keith, our reformed saint of a QS director, handled it pretty well all afternoon, to the extent that I took pride in his maturity. The pub closed at three, and we went back to the office allowing the lads to go home to start their Christmas holiday. Bill Northard, however, was not letting the afternoon's rancour go. He followed us down Church Street to the office in a calm but menacing fashion. I was feeling uneasy, so I'm sure were the girls. Keith motioned for the rest of the staff to take the back way into the office through the yard while he headed to the front door to draw Bill away. Like me, he obviously had the feeling that things were about to turn nasty and this was confirmed when the ganger followed him into the office. Whatever happened in that small front lobby was over quickly, and if Bill was expecting a drunken scuffle with an office boy, he was sorely mistaken. Keith dispatched his assailant in double-quick time, and with the expertise of a prizefighter. A prediction in this instance of only one winner might not have had such short odds as the bout in the Grange car park, but the Geordie boy always had my confidence in the not-so-noble art of a good scrap. A welcome outcome of the incident was that our office lobby got a much-needed redecoration during the Christmas period, ready to welcome visitors in the new year. I also have to admit to being somewhat elated by the macho declaration that office workers were not there to be intimidated or threatened, but I'm still upset by violence as I know it's never an answer. Keith Lee was good, and he would go on to get a degree in law to go with his degree in Quantisavane, become a barrister and one of the most qualified people in the industry, but he was unpredictable. We eventually had to conclude that Mr or Mrs Reliable beats Mr or Mrs Talented when you are trying to build an organisation. But in those early days, Keith the Miner's son taught us to take the risk of winning rather than being inhibited by the fear of losing. Losing being easy if your family and community have been doing it for years. The wet, bleak winter that year was hampering our Castle Hill projects, particularly the cardio theatres, and we could not get them dried out enough to commence decoration or the specialist finishings. Over Christmas I would leave the family festivities at regular intervals to go and empty the dehumidifiers we had on the site. The specialist subcontractors were needlessly adversarial and commercial and at the specialist subcontractors were needlessly adversarial and commercial, but I was used to this from my time in the West Riding, so we engaged in a battle of contractual spats, both large and small. The F. Sewell and Company, prior to the arrival of Keith and I, might have folded under the pressure, 
but we relished the battles and were knowledgeable enough to win most of them. This worried Doug, our patriarchal MD, because it was changing the nature of his friendly family company. We did our fair share of agonising, but the pond of work was getting smaller and the crocodiles in it, in the shape of our competitors, were getting bigger, so we had to play by their rules or die. Dennis, Keith and I were determined not to die. We were going to be successful and with youthful exuberance we joined battle with Keith Granger and his unreasonable snagging list, especially subcontractors with their unreasonable commercial demands and the architects who thought they could never be wrong. We won through with the help of our experienced tradesmen and the kindly father figure of an architect from Gilder and Kitchen called Ken Barnard, who was different from the other ARIBA architects. Ken was calm, kind and an antidote to the commercial aggression we were engaged in with just about everybody else. In fact, he chose being kind over being right at critical moments and gave us architects instructions that perhaps we shouldn't have had. We reciprocated and the spirit of cooperation grew. This not only got the job finished, but it gave me an early lesson about collaboration rather than adversarialism, being at the heart of a successful leadership, despite the fact we were good at the latter, winning more battles than we lost. Over the succeeding years, we developed an effective iron fist in a velvet glove policy, whereby if people wanted a fight in an adversarial industry, they could have one, but we much preferred to cooperate before it got to that. We always expected a scrap, but if it didn't come, we didn't provoke one. On the contrary, we'd soften our approach, but always from a position of strength. Even Keith Granger mellowed towards the end of the Castle Hill projects and became part of the team that got these two difficult but prestigious schemes over the line. I'm sure he ended up respecting us and liking us, to the point where he became the pro bono agent for the first of my two major signings. Before then, however, we came up with our first instance an example of giving something back, which we'd go on to do habitually and ritually throughout my time at Sewell. What we gave back on this occasion was to be, relatively speaking, the biggest and most generous example in our history. At the opening ceremony of the Twin Cardiothoracic Operating Theatres, the chief consultant, K. Van Magissi, lamented the fact that they were short of equipment to make full use of these fabulous new facilities. One thing they particularly needed was a new state-of-the-art fibroscope, which could look into bodily parts without the need for invasive surgery. We had done well financially on the project, but not outstandingly, which summed up our year. But we took the spontaneous and some say ill-considered decision that F. Sewell and Son, the building contractor for the project, would finish the job off properly and buy the fibroscope for them. Dennis, Keith and I were as one with that decision as we were in the press photograph of us presenting Mr. Magissi with the machine that had cost us a fair chunk of our annual profit that year. Caven promptly demonstrated its capabilities by playfully looking up a nurse's sleeve. You wouldn't get away with that now, but nobody thought that much about it then, even though the 70s were departing and the 1980s dawning. As with the previous management regime, Dennis and I split our customers and their projects between us. He looked after our significant long-term relationship with blue-chip manufacturers in Hull, such as Reckitt and Coleman, the Territorial Army, TA, who were very active back then, and the Yorkshire Bank. I looked after the local authority work and the health sector in all its guises. The NHS was then in the midst of a reorganisation, as it has seemed to be in ever since. One big, long, 40-year reorganisation. I went on to work with the NHS for my entire professional life, latterly with my company as a shareholder, with them as part of the family, so to speak. Perhaps this gives me licence to comment. I am incredulous as to how any organisation can continually restructure and hope to be as effective as it wants to be. I also wonder how it can spend more than one pound just to spend a pound in what is too often a bureaucratic procurement nightmare. I believe passionately in the NHS and support its values, but we must accept that the model is becoming unsustainable and needs to be depoliticised to have any chance of survival in a form that we can recognise. 
It was while I was working with the NHS on some ward refurbishments at Hullrain Infirmary that I was to come across their iconic clerk of works, Keith Granger, again. He was a good guy, Keith, hugely experienced and willing to help as long as he got top-notch quality and this was useful to us in setting our standards. He got much better after our runnings at Castle Hill. He realised that we were no mugs to be pushed around, but professional people providing a professional service. Upon reflection, I guess it was here that my respect to gender was born, and it remains to this day a sole value. My philosophy is this, always give respect first, and then you can expect it back. If it's not reciprocated, demand it. If it is still not reciprocated, get out of the relationship. I learned, with the help of Keith Lee, that having the difficult conversation early when issues arise is much better and ultimately easier than saving up the spit and letting resentment grow only to have a bigger confrontation later. I preferred harmony to rancour and realised that a problem confronted earlier got smaller while one swept under the carpet only got bigger, to the point where there was a big lump under your carpet to deal with. I'm still not a perfect practitioner of this now, but I'm much better than I was. One day, after a whole Royal Infirmary site meeting, we were having a cup of tea in the canteen, and Keith mentioned another contract he was looking after out east in Holderness, near Kingham. It was a housing accommodation project with a York company called Claxton and Garland. If you lot think you are good and well organised, this lot are better, he teased in his usual way. But I understand they're moving out of the area, and the kid running the site is a good un, better than you've got. I rolled my eyes at his attempt to wind me up, but I was both curious and needy. Keith set up a meeting, and I came across a young man with the pretentious double-barrelled name, who would become my mainstay for 30 years, and help F. Sewell and Son modernise to become Sewell Construction. I had just acquired my first company car, a totally underwhelming brown Toyota Corolla Estate, which I immediately nicknamed the Flying Shite. Doug had a red Alfa Romeo, Dennis a silver Honda Accord, Keith a metallic green VW Sirocco, and I had a Japanese turd on four wheels. Cabin Gray Nicholson arrived at our meeting in a far superior German Audi. This seemed to please him, and made the meeting much more of a conversation than an interview, which is as it should be. A new family man, Cavan was tall, gangly, ambitious, and full of pent-up energy that reminded me of Richard Clough. Although he was a bit narrow-minded and greedy, as only a bricklayer can be, I knew he was exactly what I wanted. His razor-sharp features were softened by a perfect beetle mop-top, and what do you know, a bushy brown fair moustache. His father had always worked out in the sticks for the man in the big house and he wanted more for himself and his wife and two girls. He would always have a bit of that edge, which meant he was more me than we or us, but I sensed he would be organised, reliable and hard-working. As we shook hands on a deal for him to join us and before I went off to ring Keith Granger to thank him, I reflected that those complacent entitled Luddites back at the ranch were in for the shock of their lives. In all the years I knew Cavan, and with all the many company cars that would receive his obsessive loving care, he would only ever have the same model. An Audi. A red one. As luck would have it, and I believe luck is essential to any success, no matter what others say, Sewell had just won its first £1 million contract to build sheltered housing with warden accommodation for 63 elderly people for the Railway Housing Association on Chantlands Avenue in Hull. This couldn't have been better, either as Cavan's main job, or for me so early in my career at Sewell, for it was slap bang up the alley of our recent experience and our expertise. With no recent track record, I couldn't believe that Sewell had even been asked to tender, let alone being able to provide the winning bid. I worried whether we had got the right price, but it all checked out when our bill of quantities was given the OK. Well done, Doug. Our silver fox of a master estimator had done the biz. I remembered that he'd been sitting at his supremely untidy desk pricing the job when I went in to see him the week before. 
the bid being due in at noon that day. He was in a real flap, and nobody flapped quite like Doug. Time was short, and he was missing a flooring quote to complete his build-up. He knew one had come in from Sealand Flooring, but he couldn't find it amongst the confetti heap of papers on his desk. Shit! Where is it? I knew it's in, he said rummaging aimlessly, picking up sheets of paper and immediately discarding them. Shit! It's here somewhere! I went down on my hands and knees to look under his desk. Shit! It has to be in at noon, and we're not going to make it. You will, by now, be aware of Doug's favourite word when stressed. Shit! Four weeks wake up the swanny! I was getting concerned myself, but as I got up off the floor, levering myself up via his desktop, I saw that he'd discovered a piece of paper amongst the carnage, which had made him smile at first, then beam, sitting back contentedly in his chair. Got it, thank Christ, I said, naturally assuming that he'd discovered the flooring quote. I was wrong. But what a lovely holiday that was, he said calmly, apparently without a care in the world. The job was won, contract signed, and it was out onto the site. The first issue to confront was a grotto. The old railway sardines were severely overgrown with thick brambles, bushes and trees that would not have shamed the deepest Amazon rainforest. Our muck-shifting subcontractor, DJ Brodie, was having trouble getting through them. Progress was slower than expected and was halted entirely by the discovery of an incredible little structure that a homeless person, which in those days we called a tramp, had built and made his home. It was a little palace and it was heartbreaking to handle his rehoming and its destruction to make way for some proper, if less quaint abodes. Despite our attempts to be compassionate, our tramp got around to suing us in the fullness of time, having been granted legal aid. It was our new and growing professionalism that saved the day. Cavan had recorded and photographed all the pertinent aspects of the incident, so when the claims against us were submitted, we had the evidence to disprove them. The second major issue was the setting out on site of the complex layout. Sewell did not have an engineer and expected our site foreman to do the job. Cavan had never had to do it and hence had never been trained. Our only option was for the worst engineer at Fairclough to get stuck in and for me to endeavour to pass on all my bad habits and paucity of skills to our new acquisition. Beverly Westwood, here we come. Panic spread amongst the locals who thought the builders were invading their ancient pasture land. But we had a good time bashing in pegs and swinging angles on the theodolite in what turned out to be a bonding experience for us. With the help of Dennis, I persuaded a reluctant Doug not to use the old kind of panel prefab site offices that we'd used at Castle Hill, but to invest in some brand new bright coloured state-of-the-art 24 foot by 9 foot porter cabins stacked on top of each other on the site at the corner of Brickland Avenue. The staircase leading up to the site manager's first floor office went past the Sewell lettering on their side and it all helped to send the message that we are here, we are a modern professional builder and we mean business. It was a statement we needed to make as much for ourselves as anybody else. We also needed to become as modern in our production control on site as Fairclough were, so I gathered all of the collateral I had brought with me and created an incentive scheme under which all operations would be targeted using what Doug had included in our detailed price. We could then reward those that beat our estimates with bonus payments and deal with those who didn't even meet our minimum requirements and who we couldn't afford to employ and keep in the business. I knew from past experience that the vast majority of the incumbent Sewell employees would fall into the latter category, even though I found our prices in Hull luxurious compared to what I was used to on the housing sites in the West Riding. The buying went well, with most of Doug's allowances in his estimate proving generous. We had a particular coup with the cream brick specified for the site. The manufacturer had what was known as a rogue burn, which produced bricks known as seconds. We were offered the full quantity at half price. Keith and I travelled over to their works and could see nothing wrong with them, apart from the fact that if we wanted any more, they might be of a slightly different shade. 
we took the risk as we wanted the exact quantity they had available. We knew we were their only prospective purchaser, so we got the price halved again and made a fortune on the brick purchase. So we had a million pound high profile job, a new young site manager setting the tone with modern high quality setup and both he and I familiar with cottage walloping as housing was called in the industry back then. People in the local industry started to sit up and take notice and I brought all that Bob Dennison, Rodney Anderson, Richard Clough and Doug Maris had taught me to bear here on this site no more than three miles away from where I lived and directly opposite Murrayfield Road where Sue had lived. Our Railway Housing Association clients and their professional team were good people who didn't want to fight. They just wanted a good job and they were going to get one. We were now in good shape to be a real home for talent and get the best people onto our site and into our rejuvenated company. I was indeed back home and we had lift off. Cavan brought his experienced white-haired weather-beaten ganger called Dennis Cobbett over from Claxton and Garlands as he in turn brought just about the best ground worker around at that time in Trevor Jones. I recognised this tall, stoic man wearing a flat cap and rolling his own cigarettes while weighing up a job as my challenger for the centre-forward position in the county football team. But he never mentioned it and neither did I. What he did mention was our bonus measure and he always calculated his earnings to the penny and he earned a lot. It was our gain and privilege to have Trevor for the whole of his productive career right up until his retirement. I knew we needed a proper bonus of her and Cav had one at Claxon and Garland. He was a Cottingham lad who I went to school with called Bill Lee. With Claxton's demise he had already moved on to Stepney Contractors but we tracked him down and made another wonderful lifetime signing. Bill performed multiple roles over his long and distinguished career with us. Bonus surveyor, production control, planning, quality assurance, health and safety, you name it, Bill did it. He was a first example of a modern, flexible, value-driven sewerly over that long, unfulfilling career. Bill did so much to make the company we were to become, always quietly and unassumingly. An unsung hero, if there ever was one. As I write, he should be in happy retirement, but he's over in Huddersfield working with a newly acquired Sewell company, Illingworth and Gregory, helping health and safety-wise, but mainly embedding the Sewell culture. Nice one, Bill, and thank you. Talent with a new attitude was also emerging from within the company from young recently qualified apprentices who wanted to stop being the boy to the old timers so they could build a career for themselves and their new families. The surly but productive Derek Webster broke away from the old guard and went down to Chandler's Avenue becoming a cheeky pain in the ass to Cav. But he also made himself a lot of money as he ripped through the joinery. Webster's colleague the irrepressible, cheeky, chappy, cartoonish figure, Steve Wilson, Acker, the Screaming Skull, did likewise, but helped Cavan on the finishings and was obviously going to be a foreman in the not-too-distant future. Young talent was coming into the office too, with Keith getting himself a junior quantitator when Graham Atkins, a young trainee from competitors F. Hall and Son, decided to stop having to say F. Hall when asked where he worked and joined the Sewell Revolution. He was a quiet, gentle boy from Hornsey, whose inappropriate but fleeting afro perm earned him the career-long nickname of Curly. Keith was a tough boss and set high standards. I remember being in the office when Graham presented him with a piece of work standing upright by the desk while his boss examined it. After what seemed an age, Keith looked up at his junior and said in a quiet but menacing tone, Never again! bring me a piece of work like this. It's not good enough, so go away, do it again, and bring it back when it is to the required standard. He gave him back his work without even looking at him. Graham paid due heed to this piece of tough love and eventually became our long-term commercial director. We were becoming the place to be for young construction industry talent in the area, but most of the incumbent die-hard Luddites resented it and Cav in particular became a symbol for unwelcome change. 
these unreconstructed staff members blame Dennis and Doug for letting it happen and destroying their lovely traditional family company. I don't know what they thought about me as they didn't tend to tell you to your face. But I was more intolerant than I should have been, reiterating the lesson that if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance even less. Meanwhile, the Chantlands Avenue housing project flourished. Trevor Jones relentlessly and assuredly carved out and concreted the foundations in the parched earth. C.R. Booth, a fledgling Hull civils contractor, laid out the site roads up to base coast tarmac and Cavan got his bricklayers working well. They were the key trade on a housing site. The teams of two bricklayers served by one labourer was called a two plus one gang and these were recognised as the rock stars of the site for their ability to get the outer shells up thus providing the catalyst for all of the other trades to follow in what was an effective production line on the most efficient sites. This one was a very efficient site. Derek Webster was following up the brickies with the roof trusses on his own. He was then himself a fortune, but so was the company. Back in the office, Mr Hutchins' perfectly accurate records of our costs were being compared with Keith's recovered income via his site valuations. The clients... PQS Noel Stevenson and their cost value comparisons were causing some consternation. Something was amiss. The results didn't look right. We were making too much profit for them to be real. An increasingly glowing Keith and a grimacing Mr Hutchins ran them again, this time looking for errors, but not being able to find any. Keith rang me over the weekend, not being able to wait until Monday to tell me how well we were doing but also how Mr Hutchins felt profit levels were unprecedented and too high to be true. Is the cash in the bank to reflect this? I asked Keith, remembering the money on our kitchen floor that mum and I used to count in order to be able to ratify what we felt like was a good week in the fruit shops. I knew from those early days that businesses had above all to generate cash, irrespective of what the bookkeeper's figures showed. The payment model in the construction industry on the larger sites could give a surfeit of cash early on in the project, only for it to dissipate towards the end, but Keith assured me he had taken this into account. I certainly have, Bonnie lad. You can get a new Toyota now. Maybe a yellow one. You can call the flying banana. Fuck off, I'll have a green one like you, and it can be called the flying lettuce. A full lettuce, rather than a half. I was of course really pleased, but the profit felt justified for what we were producing, the effort and talent that went into it, and the risks we have taken. It would enable us to continue our modernisation programme with every site having decent modern cabins, proper welfare facilities and a good professional image. Dennis could now buy some decent plant and equipment, a digger and a couple of new dumper trucks for a start, so we wouldn't have to keep endlessly patching up the old ones. And Harry could retire and start buying his own tyres for his car. The lads could have some proper decent hand tools and equipment so we could legitimately demand productivity gains and start looking at computerising the office systems so Mr Hutchins could lay his quill pen to rest. At the end of that year, Doug gave us a bonus cheque that doubled our wages and I then felt justified in taking the risk of a salary cut to come back home to F. Sewell. Sue, however, didn't see things quite like that, feeling that it was a bit obscene that anybody could get money like that when so many others were struggling in the austerity of the 1970s. Give me strength. Tell you what, I'll go give Doug it back, I said in frustration. But Sue has always been like that, working in town on the soup kitchens, when I joked that her customers had more means than we had. Helping out women's aid, before realising that despite most of the girls having been rescued, sheltered and rehabilitated, many would go straight back to their abusers. She then decided to concentrate on the cruelty done to poor animals by helping form the Hull Animal Welfare Club. The rest, as they say, is history. Meanwhile, my father-in-law George and I were still finishing off the refurbishment of our terraced house on 232 Northgate. One Saturday afternoon, we were caught short of a couple of buckets of sand and cement, so it made sense for me to nip down to the Chandlers Avenue site in the flying shite to grab what we needed. 
Unfortunately, when I arrived at the site's compound gates, I realised I had forgotten my keys, and not wanting to go back, I thought I would belly wiggle through the gap under the gates. I mixed the stuff up and had three buckets of sand and cement to transport back to finish our job, and they were pushed under the gates so I could follow. I was halfway through my backslide under the gates when I saw a sight I had seen before in the cold chicken coma scandal in my car outside my house. The three polished silver buttons on the thick navy blue jacket bore an amazing resemblance to the ones worn by my persecutor back then. It was deja vu, except this time the rhetoric was different and marginally cleverer. Don't tell me, the policeman said, I know what's coming. You're going to say that you're Mr Sewell. Well, yes, I replied. In fact, I am. Mr Sewell owns the building firm, he said, looking up at the foot-high lettering on the side of the cabin. Well, sort of. Mr Sewell owns the firm, but this Mr Sewell works with him and runs his site. Well, how many Mr Sewells actually are there? You don't want to know. Making the acquaintance of the local Bobby did come in useful some time later when the finishing trades were occupying the site and the local newsagent across the road, run by former Hull City player and manager Ken Houghton and his business partner Alan Glaham, was benefiting from a leap in their trade. As a thank you, an inducement for their further patronage, Alan used to run blue film showings for the lads from the site at lunchtime. An interesting reward scheme, I thought, and much more exciting than the plastic points card that Sewell on the Go runs nowadays. The films were as racy as the ones our Ronnie used to run at his Gypsyville shop though, which was much more hands-on. However, the lunch breaks were getting far too long and affecting productivity on site, and despite comments and warnings, nothing was making any difference. Enter my new relationship with our local Bobby, when as a last resort, I asked the constabulary to do me a favour by raiding the pawn den and issuing some indecency warnings. He obviously had a sense of humour, for he agreed, and the next week entered the premises unannounced. What's going on here? he asked as he burst into the room, making inquiries of the half a dozen electricians and engineers sitting around enjoying the matinee. The reported result and reaction exceeded my wildest expectations. Frozen incredulity led to panic, led to pleading. One electrician begged that he would do anything as long as his new young wife didn't get to know. This was the early 1980s rather than the 21st century, so not only could such entertainment not be countenanced, but the repercussions were more profound when such viewing was discovered by the law. The plan had the desired effect. A productive workforce working full-time on the site to finish this job as strongly as we started it. That we completed on time, with a delighted client, happy residents and an engaged community, who for a change didn't want to see the back of the builders, was an added bonus. The project's finances continued to be in root health, right through to the final account, and we reinvested profits to modernise the company as per our original intentions. CAV became our top foreman, now called a site manager at my insistence, and got himself a company car, a red Audi. In truth, I wasn't a very good builder. Dennis was a far better one, and we were gathering around ourselves some really good ones. I didn't have much grasp of the financial side of the business, but Keith did the numbers on site, Mr Hutchins kept the office side tidy, and that was good enough for now. But I was modernising our image, and making us a place to work, so the best and most ambitious would want to come to us. The image of yellow huts, the yellow vehicles, the new logos, plus the beautiful new brick and trowel brochure was giving us a different feel. I guess it's called the brand. So the 1970s are over and the 1980s are up and running. My hero John Lennon is dead, murdered by an assassin's bullet in New York City. We have a new female prime minister and a government with a new ideology that provokes a mini-industrial revolution to painfully modernise our economy. I kiss goodbye to my twenties, no longer a footballer, a student or trainee, but the director of an established local company that we are rejuvenating 
and reinventing. A married man with a family in our own house back in the village in which I was born and brought up. My blood family largely estranged but with a work family emerging. Despite the initial devastating prognosis, my eyesight is still intact via contact lenses that painfully push my cornea back into some sort of shape and, unbeknown to me, protect against and inhibit the progress of the condition that is wearing it out. Later in my 50s, they will wear out and it will be two corneal grafts or transplants that save my sight. The naivety of youth brought joy and achievement in my football and had its part to play in our early years at F. Sewell and Son. As a youngster, I tended not to overthink things and attack challenges with a young energy and exuberance. You also need to be lucky. I was and am extremely lucky. <laughs>